Welcome to a new episode of the Life Science Gets Together podcast. I'm very happy to have today Vasilis Ragusis, I hope I spelled the name right, on the show. Welcome, Vasilis. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, excited to talk to you today. Thanks. Vasilis, one question at the beginning. Your name reminds me of Greece. Summer, sun, holiday, and there is this uh, German song. Uh, it's Greek wine, Griechisch wine. Are you from Greece? Yes, I absolutely am. And yeah, your des description there kind of makes me quite nostalgic. I uh, certainly miss it. And uh, yeah, my whole family's from Greece. So every summer I get to go and enjoy the Mediterranean. And as you said, the lovely food and... Uh, oh, yeah sort of the, the sea is just absolutely beautiful. And um, yeah, so this year, as, as I'm sure the same for many people, I wasn't able to go and able to go on kind of the holiday that I wanted. So I'm going to have to wait till next year. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit unfortunate. Uh, but let's let's come back to the topic, I would say. Let's start with the topic. Um, you live in Oxford and are a student at the Oxford University. Um, the topic of today is student life and entrepreneurship. And when I think back to my days when I was a student, it's uh, 25 years ago. So the basic narrative that people grew up with uh, was finish school, find a job. And if you must, then study, but it's not necessary. And if you basically finish uh, your university career, then find a job. How is the attitude at the university amongst students these days? Yeah, uh, that's a, you know, it's good to hear your sort of background. And I think maybe perhaps I was a little bit peculiar because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was very lucky that I got a scholarship to go to America and I went to Boston University. And there it was a very sort of broad curriculum and I was studying, you know, anything possible that I could do is, is very sort of free sort of class schedule and um, I was exposed to a number of different sort of industries and you know domains and you know towards the end of it I started getting quite interested in genomics and genetics and public health and um, you know I didn't really know what I wanted to go into but I knew that I was fairly good at genetics and genomics and um, and so it's kind of like the serendipitous sort of um, you know occasion that you know I applied to Oxford and was very lucky to get in and um, you know, kind of signed up for another four years at least of, of studying and, um, you know, kind of postponing real life, I guess. And yeah, I think it's been a fantastic experience and it's kind of allowed me to, to sort of, um, you know, really, really understand what it is I want to do and how I want to sort of live my life and how I want to be. And it's really helped sort of mature me. And um, I've been very lucky to sort of be part of this great institution. And uh, if you'd like, I can kind of go into a little bit Mm -hmm. what it's like in terms of a life science perspective in the UK sure. and in Oxford. Um, sure, it would be great. So, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about the last six to eight months is, uh, you know, innovation really sort of thrives during tumultuous times. And it, it's felt like being at Oxford, you know, in particular with the focus on the Oxford vaccine group, the Chalox one vaccine and sort of the recovery trial, Oxford life science is in a really good place. And so I guess before I focus on Oxford, I can kind of give a bit of a context on, on the broader UK landscape. And um, we've done a very good job. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So we've done a very good job of uh, the life science strategy. Uh, in the UK, we spent around 37 billion on R&D in, in, in life sciences in 2018, which was around 1.7% of GDP. And they want to increase that to 52 billion 
which will be 1.4% of GDP by 2027. And in particular, sort of our prized sort of possession, I guess, is the NHS, which I'm sure you've heard lots about. And this basically gives us direct access to patients. And we see around 1.4 million people every 24 hours. um, And they're all from diverse backgrounds. So I think the real challenge that I've seen is trying to incorporate the NHS into a broader sort of life science strategy. And we've got initiatives such as the Accelerated Access Collaborative and um, the Commercial Medicines Unit and 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 other long-term pricing agreements. And um, I think these sort of initiatives are going to really help increase the NHS uptake of best value treatments and technologies. And, you know, right now, I think the NHS is actually underutilized. Things are getting better. And um, I think an example of that is the NHS is the first health system in Europe to actually agree access to CAR-T therapies and, and treatments. So um, this kind of showed it was the fastest sort of approval, product approval in the NHS's 70-year history. And um, so we're, we're going in the right path with that. And, you know, outside of that, we've got to focus on developing a dedicated life science scale-up investment program, new national infrastructure, uh, an emphasis on nationwide product projects. And in particular, for me, I think the interesting thing was the 100,000 genome projects, which um, basically sequenced 100,000 patients uh, um, with with um, a particular focus on cancer and rare diseases. And the aim there is to try and shorten the diagnostic odysseys to the time that, you know, you believe you have this sort of rare disease to actually providing mm-hmm. a diagnosis for the patient. Um, and we're trying to sort of accelerate genotype, phenotype associations and, and actually just provide diagnoses for patients that are lacking one. And what's really interesting is it's recently been announced is that um, there's this flagship sort of accelerating detection of disease program, which is 5 million patients, um, and they're recently going for sequencing. And, and, and that will sort of provide a long, longitudinal um, biological sampling uh, and other sort of um, research purposes. So it's, it's really fantastic. And, you know, when I think about Oxford within that system, I think Oxford is certainly got a huge amount of potential and it's starting to be realized. And, you know, when I think about, you know, what are the four sort of factors that I believe make an innovative ecosystem, um, I think firstly is, is the ideas. So, you know, you have Oxford being the sort of world leader in, in bioscience research. And, um, you know, we have the top medical science division in the world for the last 14 years in a row, I think maybe even more. Impressive. Uh, yeah, and it's uh, so we, we have that credible, distinguished sort of world class science, and that's been shown. You know, companies that we produced have been Adaptimmune, Immunocore, um, Oxford Nanopore, and obviously Vaxatech with the vaccine. Um, and secondly, is the people. Um, the Oxford uh, sort of old academic system, I would say, generally speaking, you have a lot of these sort of distinguished academics, um, you know, gray haired sort of biotech experts um, that have uh, a huge amount of domain expertise and, and are very certainly um, world-leading experts in their niche niche, niche areas of research. Um, but actually, the, the Oxford name and the brand name in general sort of really attracts, I've seen really top-quality postdocs and, and other researchers. So we've seen some employment growth there. Um, I think the thing that is slightly being missed is, you know, you need entrepreneurs to come in and help commercialize the science and i believe it would be good to see sort of more higher profile entrepreneurs and willing 
younger students and, and, and willing, willing, enthusiastic individuals to come and sort of take these companies through their inflection points and, and, and hopefully to, towards exits. Thirdly, is the why do, why, uh, yeah, why, do you, why, why do you think uh, entrepreneurs are needed to assist the scientists? That's an interesting thought that you laid out. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, what I've seen is that these uh, most academics, you know, they have so much experience within the science, but it's a different ballgame trying to commercialize it and, you know, creating a business model that works and, and really sort of selling the science in the right way and raising money. And I think, you know, two, two different parts need to come together is, is, is really the entrepreneur. And, and if you have that within the scientists, you know, that's, that's you know, really great. Um, but it, it's mostly quite common that you'll have sort of, you know, the, the chief scientific officer, which we have a lot of, you know, we have lots of them at Oxford. And then you kind of need the sort of budding CEO to be able to navigate the commercialization process, the deal process, um, you know, because it's very difficult. You have to navigate, you know, IP, um, the, uh, you know, lots of other sort of challenges that come across the company. So I think, you know, there's, there's several parts that need to come together. Um, that, I, I agree with that. Um, the interesting thing is I have a business background. So I'm not a scientist. And what I saw in the industry is just the usual ways um, scientists make a career, an academic career at the university. Um, some jump into a career in, uh, in the pharmaceutical industry and they are trained towards the business side over years or decades. Um, I think it's very rare that in Europe, especially, uh, that people that have no scientific background end up in life science. How do you see the situation in the United Kingdom? Are there many people with a pure business background in the industry? Yeah, that's an interesting point. And um, it definitely helps to have you know, these finance background people coming in and helping, helping companies. And we see a lot of it at Oxford where um, you kind of have these you know, younger entrepreneurs working with, um, you know, older scientists. And, and generally speaking, if the team is right, you know, that, that can certainly work. And something I was going to talk about was certainly that, you know, one of the roles of some of the societies here is to sort of inspire, you know, students to stay within bio, biotech and inspire, you know, people to grow within biotech. And um, so it's, it's very much a, uh, You know, there's many ways to go about it, and I've and I've seen you know both both sort of routes um, at Oxford. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of of Oxford, my uh, my touch point with scientists usually is through business, and um, I see in uh, scientists, especially the younger ones, I see a career in uh, the academic world, mm -hmm. um, staying uh, at the university and. Um, doing experiments, research, and uh, later on also teaching uh, young students. 
um, when it comes to entrepreneurship, um, I very rarely hear from, from students that they want to leave the university and found a company. How is the situation for students in Oxford? I, uh, is the university doing something for those students who wish to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, um, so this is actually a very good point and something that I think Oxford has sort of struggled with in the past is kind of really creating a business entrepreneurial environment. And I think it has really um, improved over the last few years. Um, you know, one thing I'll say is that, you know, biotech is very much seen as this sort of high risk, low probability, capital intensive industry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the cost to take a drug to market is around 2 billion. And I think where Oxford has perhaps struggled a little bit is actually attracting sort of high risk capital from investors. And, you know, the appetite in the UK in general is actually very much sort of lowered in terms of risk capital versus mm -hmm. the US. Uh, mm -hmm. You kind of get a deflation of these valuations. And, you know, you look at sort of the Babe Ruth sort of uh, theory that, you know, you, you want to hit these strike, you know, want to hit these home runs and sort of ag invest aggressively in early stage startups so that you get those unicorns that sort of return the rest of the, the portfolio. And there's been some really good um, firms that have, you know, OSI, for example, have raised about 600 million. They're this evergreen funds and they're starting to invest fairly aggressively. Um, but generally speaking, I find one of the real challenges we have at Oxford is, is actually retaining students and attracting talent on a student level. And there's, there's this quintessential move. I'm sure there's some Oxford students on the call right now. To, to, they kind of want to gravitate towards finance and consulting And there's this real sort of um, attraction of these blue chip sort of big blue chip names with high paying salaries and, you know, glamorous lifestyles. And, you know, I guess it's how you define glamorous. But um, <laughs> I think what Oxford could do a little bit better is sort of actually communicate and uh, sort of reflect basically what, what science is going on at the university. And, and I think what we were doing as part of the Oxford Biotech Society was was actually really creating attractive events, mm -hmm. whether it be a founder event or a scientist event or a biotech startup showcase, or even an investor panel to kind of really attract these finance sort of individuals. But really just, I think there needs to be more of a platform for students to learn about the, the mission of these companies mm -hmm. and what they do, you know, the big challenges, the bold ideas, because they are, it's really cool to learn about. And, um, having these sorts of really high impact events have a lasting effect on these students and really might change their time. Um, yeah. You mentioned the Oxford uh, University Biotech Society. Can you explain to me what this is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we were just a, a small sort of um, society at Oxford of, of, of um, postgraduates and undergraduates that came together to try and really inspire The next generation of bio entrepreneurs and we would uh, try and raise a little bit of sponsor money uh, from pharma companies and we'd try and hold events and really just provide a platform for, for networking and sort of informational talks and um, I guess what it really comes down to is is really trying to develop the entrepreneurial mindset within students I think you know a lot of these students at Oxford are incredibly smart I mean um, they have all the qualities of an entrepreneur, you know, the critical thinking, creativity, communication, problem solving, but it's, it's really not enough. And you have to have this entrepreneurial mindset. And so I think that's what societies like the Oxford Biotech Society 
can do. And, you know, there's lots of other societies that are doing a fantastic job as well. Um, but they can really sort of work with the institutions and the universities to try and help give students the opportunity to become more entrepreneurial and, and kind of have the confidence to take ideas forward. And I think that's where um, we can kind of really push from a university side and, you know, success and, and learning are not mutually exclusive, you know, in the startup world, you know, you, you can do both. And, you know, even if you fail, you actually succeed. So I think there needs to be more of a focus on how to commercialize academic ideas and how to kind of drive students within sort of biotech and life sciences. That's true. What's happening on the university level in Oxford uh, in the curriculum that uh, students have? Is there anything in a life science uh, study that uh, touches the entrepreneurial space or is it pure science? From what I've seen, it's, it's purely science. And um, it's basically, you know, you do your undergrad and, and I think the closest you can get to biotech is basically um, doing biology as an undergrad and then perhaps doing a master's. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people that have done that. Um, and then going to do a PhD. And, you know, when you do a PhD, it's, it's very, very specific. I mean, you're doing one area for four years at least. Um, and I think Cambridge has started to have a master's in biotech and bioentrepreneurship, which is, mm -hmm. I think, fantastic. Um, but I haven't seen that at Oxford yet. And I think, you know, I think we're getting there. I think in the next few years mm -hmm. that there will start to be these sorts of programs. Um, and, you know, we can talk about it later, but, you know, there's initiatives such as the Oxford Foundry Mm -hmm. um, that are actually trying to fill the gap in that way. I mean, it's very interesting, um, science and entrepreneurship. Um, how should I describe that? I think it's basically two completely different things. So on one hand, you have science with um, having the necessity to going really deep into one topic. And on the other hand, you have um, entrepreneurship, which I think is a completely different game. How, how do you see the similarities and the differences between these two disciplines? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think the, the easiest way I can probably describe it is choosing it as a kind of career path, I guess. So if you, you know, if you go into startup, you know, you don't have that sort of secure salary. You don't have the secure sort of um, you know, stage forward and promotions and all this, you know, things can change, you know, you, you can, a trial could flop or, you know, you might even, you know, might not be able to get investment. So I, I definitely boils down to sort of the risk that a student wants to take. And, um, you know, you go to finance, you know, you're part of, you know, big cohort, big companies, and you're kind of a small cog in a very large machine. But, um, you know, the risk that you're taking as an individual going to those companies is fairly low because, you know, the, That you're a very small part of a company. Um, so I guess it, you know, what I'd like to see is a higher risk appetite for these younger students to go out and take a risk. And I certainly trying to reflect that um, with, with what I do, you know, and, um, you know, kind of taking opportunities that, you know, you might not even be, be certain uh, are right or certain you can even do, but, you know, you just find a way and, and, and you learn on the job. And um, I think Oxford probably help students out a little bit more with that. Yeah, I mean, entrepreneurship mostly is uh, navigating in uncharted territory anyways. Uh, you mentioned the risk appetite amongst students. When I was a student, I mean, in Austria, Austrians love safety and security. Mm. And the risk appetite amongst students was, I would say, on a scale from one to 10 was a, was a one, where one is uh, absolutely risk averse. Yeah. Um, how is the attitude amongst students these days? Yeah, I think, 
I think I've, for me, I've been very lucky to be surrounded by um, a lot of my friends that have gone off to actually start their own companies. I think, which is quite, a, quite, I'm very lucky to have that. But um, mm. I, I say, generally speaking, there is just such an attraction towards sort of finance and and um, consulting because it seems like this very sort of stable career towards success. Um, so I'd say, generally speaking, the risk appetite just isn't isn't quite there. And I'm, you know, I'm not sure if it's sort of linked to kind of a broader, um, you know, political environment, how people, you know, want kind of, um, you know, high paying salary early on, or if they want sort of stability with a job. Um, but I'd say generally speaking, there has been um, a lower sort of involvement in really high risk things. I mean, you could go off by yourself and try and start a company for a year and, um, you know, not have any money, but, you know, you might end up having a, you know, a unicorn or, you know, you might end up raising money and, you know, being a millionaire in 10 years. But, you know, if you take that, that risk, um, if you don't take that risk, you'll never really know. So I'll say that generally speaking there, this sort of this hesitant, you know, people are quite generally hesitant in the UK to do really, really, really risky things. And um, the people that do really stand out and, um, you know, you have a lot of those sorts of people also, but I, I always, I always thought, uh, in the United Kingdom is pure entrepreneurship. So I always thought that uh, it's just the Austrians that are so risk averse. Um, thinking back to, to the nineties, I mean, we really didn't have much role models. The internet was young. So most of the people were influenced by their close environment, which uh, changed tremendously over the last 25 years. Now we have the internet, we see success stories from all over the world. I mean, for example, Facebook, Amazon, Apple. Um, how, in your opinion, does that influence the, the thinking of young students, of students in Oxford? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, great point again. And um, I think in particular with the coronavirus, everything's gone online, things are accessible through webinars. And, you know, obviously, you know, to your point earlier, you know, also UK is, is a very good place for entrepreneurship, but, you know, you look at the biggest companies in the world and where have they come from? You know, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, they've all come from America, right? Austria. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would love to say Europe, but uh, are you aware of any European success story in the last 10 years? So, I mean, uh, on, on the level of Apple, Google, Amazon, I think the Chinese have Alibaba, Tencent, so, but, but from Europe? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure there are, but, the, you know, not quite at the level of Amazon and, and Google, Facebook and Tesla. And, you know, those, those companies are really, really impacting the world. And mm -hmm. um, I'd probably say the closest in Oxford might be um, Oxford Nanopore, which is sort of this handheld sequencer. Mm -hmm. um, but... Again, they're still actually quite early stage, and I think they're they still have some big milestones to hit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely like a really good point. You know, why haven't we created you know the next Amazon, the next Google here here in the UK? And I think it's something that we need to reflect on and really figure out. You know, and not only the UK, I think entire Europe. I, I mean, Spotify. This is one, but it's not really deep tech. Um, but other than that, we have uh, local suppliers. When I look at the life science industry, uh, we have few companies that are really successful. But um, for most of them, I'm not really sure if they are still European because the IPO on the Nasdaq. So it's basically they relocated uh, most of the operations and the headquarter to the United States. What, in your opinion, could Europe do 
to support students um, to move more towards entrepreneurship early on. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Um, I think the universities can play a really good good role in um, really developing that entrepreneurial mindset and Oxford, if I, if I give it an example, so we have um, an initiative called the Oxford Foundry, which was mm-hmm. actually established through the Said Business School here. Mm-hmm. And the aim here was to build a, a new generation of ventures that actually better society and, and, and actually not only that, but actually nurture more ethical leaders who put the people and planet first. And, you know, I wouldn't, you know, quite call it um, social entrepreneurship, but I would definitely say that it's more of a focus on impact rather than profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the foundry has been fantastic in, in in gaining funds. I think that their big funders have been Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn and Mohammed right. Amersi, who's a fantastic philanthropist. And I would mm-hmm. definitely recommend reading some of his, his articles online. Um, we have other initiatives such as the CDL, which is the Creative Destruction Lab, which is based more on science tech-based companies. And again, they're trying to actually scale um, seed stage companies. Um, mm-hmm. You have OUI, which is a little bit more of a sort of older institutional sort of um, uh, kind of uh, office. And they're basically working on commercializing, providing funding and, and consulting services. Um, and you have these newer sort of partnerships that are trying to inspire students. We have the, the Hill, which is actually sort of a, a digital health incubator um, uh, here in Oxford. You have um, EvaTech um, OSI uh, kind of forming a Lab 282 partnership, which was actually to, to translate basic research in, in disease-related biology. And I think these sorts of programs can start to really appeal to students. They can see sort of the next stage. And I think, yeah, if the, if the university can offer a platform and, you know, high-risk capital and a platform that can provide services, advice, mentorship, you know, I think mentorship mm-hmm. is really, really critical in this sort of environment and, and something that I've certainly benefited from a lot. And we can talk about that again. Um, but yeah, the, well, you, you mentioned the Oxford Foundry. What's your role at the Oxford Foundry? So I've, I've been very lucky to be part, um, part of the Foundry for a couple of years now and, um, I kind of saw it through its sort of inception and, and w- was working very closely with, with some of the managers there. And, you know, I wouldn't say I had a very big part to play, but I was very lucky to be part of um, something called the Student Advisory Board. And the, the role there was to actually join with other leaders and students from different parts of the university and actually sort of learn about uh, leadership and, you know, mm-hmm. tackling big problems in entrepreneurship and, you know, how do we inspire the next generation and, you know, it was, it was quite sort of profound to have these younger students come together. And actually, they, would be, they, they actually were very, um, we were very lucky to sort of be part of some talks. We had some 
We had Biz Stone, co-founder of Twitter, come in. Jorn Lessigen, who was the co-founder, he founded uh, Meltwater. Um, we also had Phil Libin from Evernote come in and talk to us. So it was very intimate events of, of you know, a few students talking to these successful entrepreneurs. And it was kind of my first taste of what it really took um, to kind of succeed in there. You know, I wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur by any means. You know, I'm, a, I'm an aspiring entrepreneur. Yeah, I'd love to become one. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think eventually I hope, I hope to do that. But I think, you know, I think doing the stuff beforehand and educating yourself about learning you know how to commercialize a product is is really important and mm -hmm. i think uh, you know that's what that's what the university can do i mean you mentioned a few companies uh while you were talking and it sounded to me that you already had the chance to speak to the world's most successful entrepreneurs these days uh, i think the most interesting thing that i realized over the last 10 years is that um, almost none of the really successful entrepreneurs had making money in their minds in the first place. So it was always about, uh, you said it before, social entrepreneurship, impact ventures. So basically they wanted to change something in the world. How is your perception of the attitude of entrepreneurs? Mm, I think this is one of my favorite sort of points is all the mentors that I've had and, you know, I've had some very, very successful mentors who I'm sure have, um, you know, made many, many millions. They've never, ever talked about money. They've never, ever showed off in any way. And um, I think that for me has been really telling. And I think it's a real good characteristic. And, you know, that humility and, and being humble and, and giving back is, is amazing. And, I, and I'm very lucky to have some fantastic mentors um, who, have, who have always made time for me and been interested in, in talking. And I think that's one of the amazing things about the world nowadays is that you can easily reach out to people. And, you know, if there's a connection there and, you know, you have to give something to them, you have to, you have to create a connection. You have to, you know, be engaged. And, and I think that's what the amazing thing about mentorship is. And, and I guess, yeah, you're absolutely right. If you find good mentors, they don't focus on, you know, the money and the profit, And, you know, of course, you know, everyone needs to make money and, and, and live, but it was more about the impact you can have more about yeah. changing people's lives. And in particular in the life sciences about, you know, impacting human health and, and curing diseases. And I think that for me, it was really profound. That's a very important point that you mentioned, um, not showing off that the people are successful. When you open the internet these days, uh, maybe it's because I have a business background, uh, I see a lot of webinars and seminars um, organized by people who focus on one topic, how to make 1 million euros. And uh, it's very funny because uh, none of them really answers the most important question in the first place, what's your vision? What do you want to achieve in life and how do you want to, to impact uh, the world? And you come directly from the opposite and say, um, it's important to first think about the vision and the impact and find the right mentors who support you. So I'm very interested in how did you find your mentors? What's your secret? I think networking is a, is a very, it is a bit of a skill and um, you have to have the confidence to be able to reach out to people and, and in the right way as well. And um, I think, you know, some of my mentors might be on this call, but um, I'll, get, I'll give some examples. So I think within the biotech world, um, one particular mentor for me recently has been um, Reza Ilkani, who um, 
who's a kind of CFO at uh, Biologix in San Francisco, and he's kind of given me sort of a finance sort of uh, perspective. Um, Chris uh, Dokomidula from uh, Dealformer, who I've spoken to recently, I think is on the call today. Um, he's really given me sort of um, a really good idea in, uh, from the deal side of biotech and how the licensing works. And, um, you know, other individuals, Jackie Hunter, for, uh, CEO of Benevolent AI, and um, Dave Norwood, who, who actually founded OSI. I mean, all these are fantastic individuals, and I've missed some out. Um, but basically, it just gives you a flavor that these really high-profile individuals will make time for students that are enthusiastic and want to learn about their futures. And I think the most important here that I can, you know, give, uh, most important point I can give here is, you know, don't make decisions in the echo chamber of your own head. You know, listen to, <laughs> listen to more experienced people. And, um, you know, th- these, these individuals have been through it all. They've been through, you know, they've taken the hard route and, you know, they want to make things a little bit easier for you. And I think um, that's the amazing thing about being able to connect over Zoom and um, over webinars like this is, you know, you can talk to people that might be able to help you even just a little bit and you can, Usually you can learn something from everyone, really, from anyone and everyone. And I think, um, you know, interact with people outside your circle and, and really create a network of mentors that feel like a sort of support system for you. And, um, yeah, so that's it. That's a good point. Uh, how was it never make decisions in the echo chamber of your own head? I have yeah, to yeah. I, have, I have to remember that. Uh, it's absolutely true. I mean, uh, many people achieved success already and... Um, I don't know who said it. it. It was definitely an American entrepreneur, but it went like this, uh, find a vision, set a goal, and then look around in the world who already achieved what you want to have and just mirrored it. And I think also Gary Vaynerchuk, it's an American entrepreneur without a university degree, he says, uh, who puts it all online, his advice. And he says something similar go and try to find a role model that you uh, that resembles what you want to achieve and learn from them. Um, it's good to hear that uh, you do it in a, in a similar way. Uh, so I, I'm curious, what's, what's your career idea? What do you want to do next? Mm, it, it's something I certainly grappled with for, for a very long time. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. And kind of, I always thought, you know, oh, worst comes to worst, I'll go into yeah. To kind of, you know, be a research assistant or research postdoc somewhere. And I think through the years, it's changed a lot. And, um, you know, that's one thing I'm very grateful for Oxford. It's kind of given me the opportunity and the freedom to really think about that. Um, and I've actually realized, you know, I am young and, uh, you know, okay, I'm not too young, um, but I'm just finishing up my studies, hopefully. But I think it's, it's a good time to take a risk. And I think it's a good time to, you know, be part of a team with a really profound mission that, that does want to help the world. And, um, yeah, so I'll hopefully, you know, I, I, you know, I don't want to say too much yet, but I'll, I'll hopefully be joining a startup uh, fairly soon. And, um, you know, maybe in six months I can talk more about it. And, um, you know, I don't want to jinx it in any way. But, uh, yeah, very lucky to, to be given this opportunity to join this really enthusiastic team with great science. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was kind of trying to move away from not, not 100% move away from the lure of, uh, you know, finance and, and consulting, but um, kind of try and really, you know, what makes sense in my life right now. And, and I think it's sort of taking an incremental step towards sort of uh, entrepreneurship through, you know, applying what I've learned in my PhD and, and, and doing a, uh, being part of a startup. 
Are you focusing hundred? I mean, we don't have to talk about details about the startup. I'm just yeah, interested yeah. in how you handle it. Are you planning to focus 100% of your time working in the startup or is it a mixture of 50% university, 50% uh, as an academic career and 50% startup or another mix? That's a, that's a very uh, good question because, uh, you know, I'm actually slowly finishing up my PhD, which I think uh, you know, people have asked me basically every couple of weeks, you know, how's it going? And I'm just like, oh, yeah. it's still working, still working. Um, so I think my aim is, you know, hopefully start and, you know, I need to talk to, uh, I, need to I need to talk to some individuals first. But um, I think the aim would be is, you know, try and finish up as much of my PhD as I can in the next couple of months and then, um, you know, do some edits and, and start a career. Um, you know, I've been studying for, for a little bit too long now, so I think uh, I need to take the next step. I mean, I think the beauty in our industry is that there are a lot of uh, possibilities. So mixing academic career with entrepreneurship is still possible. Um, but part of the team must focus 100% on, on moving the startup forward. How is your, you said you finished your PhD study slowly. Uh, I think it's the experiment, isn't it? Uh, it's uh, You have to do practical work to get to your PhD. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's ironic because the whole thing is an experiment because, you know, I, <laughs> I kind of started it not really knowing, you know, what I had to do and, and, and how I was going to finish it. So I think, you know, I mean, on a serious note, it, it's a, I, was, I was very lucky because I had a, a basically a mix between sort of these wet lab experiments, which were kind of functionally mm. sort of trying to validate these genetic variants and then also sort of bioinformatic work, which was you know, using in silico predictors to actually predict the impact of these variants on, on human disease. Mm. And um, I was able to split it fairly, fairly evenly with, um, with that. And I think the last few months, because I haven't been able to go to the lab, I've just been sort of writing up and, and doing that. But it's been a great, great experience. I think, you know, I wouldn't say I'm an academic by any means. And, you know, that's probably what I struggled with quite a lot is... is um, you're trying to be an academic when I'm, 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 I'm probably not really. Um, so yeah, I think when I move to the next step, it's quite interesting, but I'm, I'm hoping to go more towards sort of the business development and potentially doing a little bit of operational work and, and kind of really creating sort of commercial licensing plan for, for a startup. Mm -hmm. How did, um, one question, I mean, with the SARS-CoV-2 situation, I think it might also have an, had an impact on, on your experiments. Uh, how do you see the, the impact of the pandemic on life and uh, entrepreneurship in Oxford? As I said, I think, um, I think innovation really does thrive during tumultuous times. And I think there's, been, there's going to be more funding going into public health and life sciences. There's, a, there's greater importance placed on preventative medicine and, and therapies that really help try and prevent human disease um, and actually potentially could cure and treat human disease. Um, so I've seen at Oxford, it's, it's become more of, a, of an understanding of going into, um, going into science and, and understanding that uh, it is a super, super important part. So I think it's a very exciting place to be. And I think that combined with the funding and more of a focus on entrepreneurship, I think there will be a really flourishing ecosystem. There's so much potential at Oxford. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great, great, great time to be involved in the space. We have a question from the audience and I uh, would like to hand the microphone to Fraser. Hello. Hello, Fraser. Nice to hear you. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Vasi. Good to, good to hear you talking business. <laughs> um, How are you doing, man? Not too bad. So what, what I'd like to what I'd like to ask is, um, you made the point around a lot of undergrads 
finish the studies, go straight into a, a you know a, a blue chip role or consulting or finance or something like that. Um, have you seen examples of people who've done that and come back into the kind of research that you're doing? Because um, and and how easy or difficult that can be because. Uh, I think a lot of people fall in that trap of thinking it's the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to just get a job as quickly as possible. But that might actually be stifling some potential creativity and maybe what your tips are for getting back in the swing of it. Yeah, great. Uh, great to hear your question, Fraser, and, and thanks for coming. And um, it's a very good point. I think consulting and, and finance, there is a huge amount of, there's a lot of merit in actually going there and, and gaining those skills, um, whether it be, you know, I think, People joke about, you know, you just go to consultancy to, to learn about um, PowerPoints and, and Excel. But I think uh, you do learn a lot about sort of business development and tackling big problems. So I'd say actually going into consulting for a couple of years is actually a very good route if you can apply it to to um, to life science. And, and of course you can. Of course you can. So I think doing two, three years in consulting and going off into a pharmaceutical company or, or startup is actually a very, very good route, um, you know, it's whether or not you can actually get, get lured, you know, if you can get lured away or if you, you get um, kind of happy with where you are. But it would be great to see more people going into consulting and then coming back into biotech. Um, I think it actually already happens quite a bit. But are you thinking about doing that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a consideration. Um, I mean, for for context, um, Bassi and I do know each other from uni, but I was an undergrad when he was a when he was a master's student. Um, I think uh, the idea of moving back into that sort of circle definitely crosses mind because you think you've talked a lot about you know social impact of the work that you do, and it's clear that on, through entrepreneurship you have a lot more control over that. Um, and maybe as an undergrad, you feel a little bit overwhelmed by the idea of entrepreneurship. I think a lot of people do. I certainly do. Um, whereas having had a bit of experience working out in the world, you maybe think maybe I could have a crack at this and it's whether the support's available there to do that. No, exactly. I think you, you hit the nail on the head there and, um, it's good to gain, gain a bit more perspective and, you know, you get older, you gain more perspective about, um, how to do things and, you know, taking that leap and taking that risk. So I think, you know, if, if consulting kind of, shows people that, you know, it's great to learn the business side of things, but you really want to have an impact and you want to go back into sort of a more socially, social impact based um, thing. And, you know, a lot of startups do a lot of social impact. Um, a lot of consultancies, I mean, do a lot of social impact, but, um, you know, it's good to really learn exactly what you want to do and then, and then, then go into it at the time when you do. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks guys. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. I agree to what you're saying. I mean, my career path basically was um, finishing university, working in merger acquisition at large corporations. And I think the advantage is to, to choose that way that basically you don't have to figure out everything yourself. 
you can download it and get paid for it on, on top of that. It's like uh, finding mentors. And this is a point that's very, very crucial that you mentioned, Vasilis, uh, finding mentors is an important, important part in the game. And uh, it's good to see what you are doing uh, in, in Oxford. Um, what are the, the, let's say, the biggest problems that uh, entrepreneurship in Oxford is facing right now that would be helpful to overcome? Uh, yeah, I think it's a lot towards that 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 risk, and um, I think I've I, you know I've experienced it myself doing a startup a couple of years ago. You know, it takes a lot to be able to get that initial funding or that initial sort of validation. So I'd like to see a little bit more work being done uh, at the early at the earlier stage, um, and actually helping either validate or sort of um, tell tell entrepreneurs to stop at the right time or, you know, it's not going to ever become anything. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, exactly as Fraser said, you know, what's that first step? It can be very daunting as a young person. And, you know, I think my, my feeling is at MIT and Harvard, it's almost sort of expected that you'll try and go in, into um, a startup or create your own thing. And, um, you know, here I don't, I, I'm not quite sure if we – You know, we're starting to give the students the tools to be able to do that, but I think we're a little bit behind the U.S. in that. Um, so I think that's the biggest challenge is, is giving the students the right tools, whether it be funding, uh, mentorship services, um, to be able to take that first step and, and really know if they want to take the next one after that or if they want to go back and kind of reevaluate the, their career choices. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, Harvard and MIT. I think I saw in your video that you spent some time there. Uh, how was it? Yeah, so I was actually at Boston University, which was, um, oh, I loved it. I mean, I really loved the American um, way of life. There's a huge mm -hmm. hustle there. There's a great focus on, um, uh, on growing. And I think, you know, I was there during a time where I myself was, was growing and um, I was, I was very lucky to be part of a, a pretty um, big sports team. So I had a lot of friends and, um, you know, I love the food and I love the sports sort of um, atmosphere. You know, people go to these like huge football games and it's absolutely wild. And I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if you've ever been to one, but um, it's, it's, it's great. I, I think in particular in Boston, what I loved was it's sort of this med tech hub and mm -hmm. you, you go to, towards Cambridge and in Boston and, you know, you can, Uh, sit in Tat's uh, Tat a coffee shop um, on Third Street, I think it is, and uh, you can have coffee. And next to you will be like a venture capitalist, and and the table across from you will be a, a biotech founder. I think it's such an enriched ecosystem where you really have all the players. And I think uh, you know Oxford and, and Cambridge are really moving towards that. But you know Boston has done a fantastic job of combining these high high um, academic institutions with the industry players and with the, the VC players. And um, it's really created a really exciting ecosystem. You think it's much more advanced in the ecosystem in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how many friends I'll make saying this, but I definitely would say yes. And I think, you know, I don't want to get in, in trouble, but I think there's, there's some great stuff going on here. I mean, um, you know, OSI definitely have the right sort of vision in terms of raising a lot of money and, and giving it out and, um, you know, I don't think we quite have, aside from that, I don't think we quite have the investor sort of competition on this side. You know, you go, for example, the Y Combinator, you know, 
all the investors are fighting over each other to be able to invest in these companies. And I think, you know, here, I think it's very much a different situation where, mm. you know, you have to really sort of fight um, to succeed. Whereas there, you know, they give you, they give a lot of, it's much more free to be able to get, get money and, and, and kind of, and either succeed or don't succeed. So I think, um, yeah, I would say that the, the, you know, Silicon Valley and, and Boston, and um, it, it definitely way, way ahead of, of, of what we have here. Oh, I, I believe the same. I mean, the stories that I experienced here in Europe starting companies was basically it's a good ecosystem for uh, raising money on a scientific level. So with Horizon program, for example, in Europe, it's uh, very unique and very helpful. Once the idea is uh, of a university it's coming a little bit tricky in some countries you have public funding available very few business angels who have the expertise to survive in the life science industry uh, which i think is a huge difference to the united states mm -hmm. and the minute we start let's just stay at the therapeutic level the minute we start developing companies towards preclinical and clinical development um, we have a few funds who are positioned in that spot. It's very helpful. But for bigger rounds, um, there's almost no money on the market here in Europe. So many companies that I know that become successful, that mature, um, basically relocate at one point in time, either to East Coast or West Coast in the United States. Uh, and what you say about the Boston ecosystem, I think it's just uh, one of the best uh, life science ecosystems in the world. Mm. No, absolutely. And um, one thing I did want to say is that you know, there's, there's a strange dichotomy because I think, you know, as much as it's a fantastic ecosystem in America, I think it's getting very expensive. I mean, mm. you know, rent for a startup in Silicon Valley, you know, I don't have any statistics, but I can't imagine it's very cheap. Um, you know, salaries as well, very expensive. I mean, an engineer in the US is probably two to three times more expensive than it is over here. So I think, you know, whether or not that's going to be enough to sort of shift um, startups to, to the UK, you know, it, it might well be. And, you know, if you combine that with the fantastic science that we do have here, it would be great to see more of a shift towards Europe. Um, cause I, you know, I, it's so expensive right now in the U S I mean, you know, <laughs> we can look at rents later, but, uh, you know, a one bedroom apartment, you know, it's got to be over, you know, 1,500 pounds a month and maybe even more. So I think, you know, that's going to be reflected in office space and lab space. Um, so it's, it's, I, I agree to that. I mean, I think it was three or four years ago, I thought I found the holy grail. So I came to the same conclusions that you have. And uh, um, I flew to the United States and talked with uh, US-based investors and uh, praised the glorious technology and science we have in Europe. And also came up with the same points and said, I mean, look, uh, Europe uh, valuation-wise is much lower than the United States. Also, the expenses uh, for personnel or uh, office space is much lower. So basically, when you invest in Europe uh, instead of the United States, um, you get much more out of your money. And we also have entrepreneurs here in Europe who are experienced. And basically, they laughed and said, I mean, yeah, we are aware of that, but we don't invest in Europe. And they said, why? And the response was quite interesting. They said, because it's complicated. Mm. Europe is, there are so many different countries. 
it's it's not really a united market. So uh, when you drive 200 kilometers, you have a completely different uh, legal system, different language, different culture. Whereas, for example, in Canada, I mean, you can drive 200 kilometers and you're in the same country and uh, not even touch a city, uh, not even come close to a city. Uh, and this was one blocking point that said that uh, really makes them not to move to Europe. Did you hear something similar when you were in the United States? I actually haven't heard that, but, I, you know, I think um, I, was, I was quite young there, so I wasn't quite um, having these, you know, cool conversations as much as I probably wanted to. But mm -hmm. I think it's definitely a um, definitely a very some very good points. And I guess the question I have for you, actually, is, is how is it in Austria? Because, I mean, the only... I know Hermann Hauser, who I guess was quite influential, sort of Austrian. Um, Absolutely. Actor, and, you know, he, especially, uh, you know, what I know is, you know, he helped really generate Illumina and um, did a lot of the work, you know, Selexa that um, eventually sort of created sort of these next generation sequencing te technologies. But, you know, how, how do you see it in, um, in Austria and Vienna? Because it's such a lovely fantastic place. I mean, my parents have visited and absolutely love Vienna. I think they might move there actually in a couple of years if they can. Um, uh, Austria is a lovely place. I completely agree to that. Um, I miss the seaside though. So uh, it's a little bit different to Greece. Mm -hmm. So uh, sailing is not as, as much fun in Austria than it is in Greece uh, or in the United Kingdom. Um, to the ecosystem, Hermann Hauser is well known. He's, he and his family is doing a great job in Tyrol. I mean, they have the IECT Summer School, which uh, is set up around the mission to support scientists in uh, understanding and learning what it takes to found and build a company. And the really great thing about Hermann Hauser and his summer school is that the don't try to turn scientists into entrepreneurs. They say, we just want to make aware that you need a team with a diverse skill set. So, which is very great. Um, when it comes to the ecosystem here in Austria, I think it's a, probably one of the best places uh, to found a company. Um, as long as it's a deep tech life science company. So we must just stay in the life science space because there is a lot of public funding sitting around. Um, the average storytelling or the average founding story is uh, when you have a few hundred thousand uh, initial starting capital, you get one to two million public funds. That, and it really helps to come over this so-called valley of death. But mm. um, once um, a company needs to go out on the market to raise a series A. Um, there are almost, there's basically, it changed a little bit, but there's almost no fund here in Austria who has the capability to structure or to finance around north of 10 million euros by itself. So it's uh, necessary to raise funds all over Europe, also the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a huge difference to the ecosystem in the United Kingdom. Um, but from the living expenses, I mean, for entrepreneurs, it's very cheap, in my opinion. So it's uh, probably cheaper than uh, living in London um, or Oxford. Um, when the company matures and uh, needs to raise a Series B or Series C, I think we are in the same spot like the United Kingdom. 
uh, we have to look overseas to the United States to raise uh, larger rounds. But for starting a company, I mean, highly welcome. <laughs> Move to Austria. Mm. I need a visit. Sounds like an amazing place. Yeah, it's fun here. Um, Vasilis, I think we're at the end of our talk. Uh, it's four minutes before uh, 5 p.m. here in Austria, and uh, I think it's 4 p.m. in the United Kingdom. Um, one final question. When you speak to undergrads in Oxford and uh, they ask you for advice, what you would recommend if they want to become an entrepreneur, what's the first step they should be doing? Uh, I, I would tell them, um, you know, take a risk, I think. You know, do something that you probably, um, you know, wouldn't have done before. And I, I definitely think, you know, make sure you think about it and, and, and you do it for the right reasons. But, you know, the time to take a risk is when you're younger. And um, I think that's what I'll try and tell them. Uh, but, you know, most, I think uh, all the students are also very incredibly smart. So I think I'm, you know, I'm also asking them for advice as well. So it's not really a one-way street, but uh, yeah, I'd say take a risk. You've got your, they're all so smart. And I think, um, you know, you can apply this any way you want. So yeah, do something that, you know, has, you know, high risk, high reward. Vasilis, thank you very much for this uh, interesting and nice conversation. Uh, you are living in probably one of the best places for science in the world, in Oxford. Enjoy your time there, and uh, I hope we stay in touch. Thank you very much, Christian. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.